0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, Stuart Trader joins us to talk about the state of the American police, the history, and their imperial outreach. In his latest book badges without border can you tell me a little bit about yourself what prompted you to write your book how did it come about
1: sure thanks i'd, I'd love to tell you about the background to the book um I, I wrote this book it started as my phd dissertation in american studies at nyu and My initial idea for what I wanted to do getting a PhD was not this book, but I had this very small notion in the back of my head based on some reading that I had done before graduate school, that there was a connection between policing in the United States, particularly in the 1960s, and overseas war. And I didn't really know basically more than just that. And once I started My PhD, it took me a while before I could pursue that line of inquiry a little bit more um, because I really just didn't even know how to begin to try to figure out if there was something to it. And the research process ultimately took me in in some pretty unexpected directions. And the result, Badges Without Borders, is, I, I would say, Ultimately, if I you know, if I had a time machine and I could go back to my original ideas um, you know, a, a decade or more ago, I think I would probably be surprised with how it turned out. And part of the reason is that I, I really thought I was going to be looking much more into the military, which I end up not looking very much at the military. And I also thought I would look much more into the 1970s and 1980s. And in fact, the book mainly focuses on the 1950s and 1960s into the early 1970s. So that process of figuring out the kind of time period, figuring out the institutions that I would look at, obviously figuring out the archives that I would delve into for my research, and most importantly, figuring out the kind of theoretical and conceptual apparatus and vocabulary that I would use, that all took some time, and ultimately unfolded in unexpected ways.
0: I'm glad you are talking about the theoretical and conceptual frameworks. One of the first things you bring up is the difference between an occupier and a police force. Do you want to mind breaking it down for the audience?
1: Sure. So in Badges Without Borders, I am mainly focusing on post-World War II U.S. foreign policy. And it's certainly true that the United States military invaded some countries in that period. The United States continues to, through to the present, hold some colonial possessions. But in general, U.S. foreign policy after World War II was not defined by colonialism as For example, Hawaii and Alaska ultimately become states. The Philippines, which had been a U.S. colony for decades, ultimately um, becomes an independent nation after World War II. And the occupations that the United States enters into after World War II in Japan and Germany, those also ultimately um, come to an end relatively soon after World War II. So the United States finds new ways to exert global power without replicating the colonial occupation form that many of the European empires have been doing. And and after World War II, some of those empires, of course, try to hold on to their colonial possessions. The United States plays somewhat ambiguous roles in some of that because I think that on the one hand, Um, There were many people in the the foreign policy establishment who recognized that continuing to support uh, European colonialism overseas was potentially dicey because they sort of saw the writing on the wall that colonialism was probably not long for this world. At the same time, they didn't want to start new fights with allies right after the end of of the war. Um, And they were also quite skeptical of the capacity for self-government of the colonial powers, which that ideology built on long-standing racial ideologies that underpinned colonialism, racist ideologies that underpinned colonialism. So the United States is watching the colonial situation in Asia and Africa. And as national liberation movements and independence movements gain further strength in the the period after World War II, it's watching quite warily. The book focuses mainly on what the United States did in countries after they became independent, after colonialism ended in them, And how the United States tries to gain influence in those countries and make sure that those countries, newly independent, don't end up becoming either communist or uh, otherwise allied politically with China or the Soviet Union or also uh, Cuba. And of course, Latin America plays a, a huge role in this, although Latin America's independence uh, era of of independence movements comes a bit earlier in, in history.
0: I'd like to offer one pushback, though. I would say instead of the end of colonialism, I would say end of formal colonialism, because there were a lot of parallel institutions to replicate colonial behavior, like the CFA and the IMF and on and on, but that's not important.
1: <laughs> well, I I, I I would totally agree, and I... In in fact, the the book is about trying to show the ways that these new institutions that the United United States is relying on to exert its power replicate many of the dimensions of control over other countries without the um, kind of colonial apparatus of um, rule that the European empires had held in place. And certainly, because the book focuses on policing, Um, There is a great influence of the long history of colonial policing in particularly British colonies that um, U.S. security experts that I look at are paying close attention to and trying to learn from and grab influences from.
0: So you very early on, probably within the introduction or the first chapter, you mentioned the concept of counterinsurgency. Can you talk a bit more about that? and how that plays into the whole idea of policing.
1: Absolutely. So the term itself, counterinsurgency, has its origins in the end of the 1950s and the Kennedy administration, which comes into office at the beginning of the 1960s and in, in early 1961, really starts using this term with great verve in its direction of of US foreign policy. What they mean by counterinsurgency is basically two key points, I would argue. On the one hand, the idea is to prevent the possibility for political subversives from gaining an influence over the population and the population is meant in a general sense. And the other is to specifically uh, control, neutralize, and indeed kill the actual subversives who are thought to be disrupting or potentially overthrowing the constituted power, the government. So on the one hand, counterinsurgency means inoculating the population against the appeals of subversives of revolutionaries for support, and on the other hand, actively countering the possibility of subversives waging various forms of war from a a kind of propaganda war all the way up to and including an active guerrilla war. So counterinsurgency implies, therefore, affording some forms of development assistance to other countries and also building up the security capabilities of those governments. And so police end up being right at the center of these two processes. On the one hand, what I show in Badges Without Borders is that the United States gives support to police forces in more than 50 countries around the globe in the period from 1954 to 1974, approximately. That is basically modernizing and and developmental type aid that the United States is is providing. Um,
0: um, what does modernizing mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to say. This this aid of of that is meant to modernize the police forces. It takes three forms. It takes the form of training police so that they have better experience um, better routines, better abilities to prevent crime and what goes along with crime in this sense, subversion. Um, so training, technical assistance. Technical assistance means basically um, going to a country and helping it to set up the technologies that police would need, ranging from communications like radios, to uh, laboratories, to surveillance um, capabilities, to filing systems, to to collect and 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 easily access data about um, suspects, and then finally the the last portion is providing a whole wide range of material implements that police would need, ranging from you know automobiles and motorcycles to guns and batons to uh, again, radios, to tear gas, as I talk about in one chapter. So all of those are meant to be ways to advance the ability and expand the ability of police to be effective. And and I use the term modernize because that's the term that that the actor's themselves in in this time period would have used. And they were, of course, influenced by modernization theory, which was a really wide ranging and quite popular paradigm for intellectuals in the 1950s and 60s that presented the idea that other countries around the globe effectively could become more like the United States if they modernized, the idea was that the United States was itself modern and other countries could become more like it in a process of economic, social and political development that ultimately for, for many U.S. foreign policy actors, the whole point was that the modernization process was meant to prevent the possibility of these countries becoming Communist. And going back to what I said earlier about preventing or, or inoculating populations against subversive appeals, the fear was for many uh, U.S. security officials and development officials was that populations in, in poor countries and underdeveloped countries might be induced or convinced to try to overthrow their governments if uh, communists pro- promised a better life to them. And the goal of development, the goal of modernization, was to prevent the, those appeals from being widely plausible and accepted, while at the same time affording some you know, minimal um, modicum of um, development and economic assistance and aid without really overthrowing the entire um, you know, political system and
0: hierarchy. Wow. In the book, you mentioned that Indonesia was the first country that accepted U.S. police assistance. And of course, what followed was just Suharto and just the brutal crackdown of like over a million people. But was it because the leaders of those countries were also equally afraid of their population overthrowing them? Like what was the, why did they allow it in the first place?
1: Sure. Yeah. No, it's a really good question. I'll speak generally and then I'll and then I'll speak about Indonesia. Generally, when the United States gave police assistance to other countries around the globe, this was based on a bilateral diplomatic agreement. The State Department, the, you know, the ambassador would speak to the people in the government of whatever country and say um you know, we think you might benefit from some police aid. You know, there it seems like there's a risk of communist insurgency breaking out. Um, what do you think? And they would say, you know, something like, "Yeah, we're we're willing to take that that police assistance. So let's let's sign an agreement." Now that makes it seem like this is two equal parties coming to an agreement where they share all the same goals. And that was almost never the case. Obviously, it's not an equal contract between two equals because the United States has preponderant amounts of power around the globe. And certainly in a lot of the countries that receive this assistance, not only does the United States already have relationships with their security apparatuses through its intelligence agencies and its, and its uh, military, But United States business interests are also uh, already active in many of these countries, and and lots of these countries are economically uh, underdeveloped, as I mentioned. So the idea that it's a a, totally equal and and consensual agreement, I think, is something we should be careful about. But nonetheless, it is is a bilateral agreement between two governments, and um, the United States then usually the way it would happen is after the initial agreement, the United States would then go in through its Office of Public Safety. This is the agency that I I look at in the book, the Office of Public Safety is the police assistance uh, arm of of the U.S. government in this period. The Office of Public Safety would send advisors to the, the country in question, and they would do an evaluation of the police forces. They would travel around the country, and produce a, a relatively detailed study of what the police capabilities were and then what the potential threats to political stability were. And so that was basically an intelligence gathering activity. And in the process, they would then come to some recommendations. They would say, well, you know, your, your rural police force that is um, you know, in, in these provinces is ill-equipped and undertrained. Um, we recommend that it go through some new training and, and get new forms of, of of equipment, whether you know vehicles, guns, whatever. Um, your urban police force is okay, but its its uh, you know crime lab is is woefully inadequate. So we recommend that you build up a new crime lab, um, and so on and so on and so on. And and in and, and in some cases, these these missions of uh, assistance were relatively short lived, and in some cases, they lasted for decades. And um, the United States would keep advisors in, in these countries, police advisors in these countries, for quite a long time. And they, they would end up having very close relations with the police leaders of the countries, and, and both at national and subnational levels. Now, did these police leaders always want to listen to what US uh, advisors were telling them? No way. Oftentimes, what I found in the archives is that these um, police leaders really what they wanted was the the motorcycles, the guns um, the the new radios, um, but they didn 't really want to take the advice about how best to do their job that many of the, the u s advisors were trying to give them so so you have this this kind of continually recurring frustration on the part of the u s which is that hey, guess what? These other countries that we've signed bilateral agreements with, um, they're sovereign and their officials are willful and they have the ability to kind of uh, disagree with us and even try to take advantage of us. Now, when you look at um, a country like Indonesia, yes, you're right that Indonesia and then also South Vietnam, these were the two countries where this police assistance effort first started. Although there were, that is, uh, in, in 1954, there were some prior efforts that were uh, more informal in a couple other places, and that, that comes out of the World War II experience that I talk about in the book. But once the program becomes formalized in 1954, Indonesia and then South Vietnam are, are the first recipients. Now Indonesia ultimately that program of police assistance there was was not very long lasting whereas in comparison the one in South Vietnam lasted basically for two decades and it came to an end with the end of the US role in South Vietnam you know during during the, the latter years of the war the reason it comes to an end in Indonesia is in part because There's basically a disagreement between the U.S. national security apparatus and Sukarno, who uh, ultimately end up not seeing eye to eye. And as you know, in the middle of the 1960s, there is a, 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 as you know, and as you mentioned, there is a massive, massive amount of anti-communist and anti-Chinese violence in Indonesia. The United States plays an important role in this, and I would argue that the police assistance program in Indonesia, as in several other countries where there were massive levels of violence that in some places merits the term genocide, police assistance helps to, again, build up the capacities of surveillance and data collection about potential suspects, suspected communists. And those intelligence files really become crucial once the governments go on these basically killing sprees in terms of who should they target, who knows whom, who's connected to whom, all of that that type of, of intelligence. It kind of gets its start out of the type of technical capacities that the police assistance program helps to introduce into these countries. Thanks for listening. To prevent
0: Historically from registering as a municipal police force so that we can receive modernization funds, we're asking you to go to historically.substack.com and subscribe to get our
1: newsletter and our podcast. Once again, that's historically.substack.com. Thank you.
0: Um, let's change directions just a little bit. Sure. Um, You devote an entire chapter to this small um, police officer, not a small, the police officer is not small, but the Kansas City Police Department is small. His name is Byron Engel, but he has a very overreaching impact. Can you talk about that? And also why you chose him as an example, like, What about him that stood out for you?
1: Sure. Byron Engel is the focus of one chapter, and and he, he appears throughout the book because he was the central figure in this history of the U.S. Police Assistance Program around the globe. From the very end of World War II until the middle of the 1970s when he retires, he is the primary figure who is operating the United States Police Assistance Program there are several other figures who work alongside him throughout the period that i look at but he's consistently the leader and byron engel is a is is an interesting figure because he was a, a he, as you mentioned he was a police officer in Kansas City he came into the police force at a moment of really dramatic transformation of the Kansas City Police Force, which had been kind of infamous for being a corrupt police force in the 1930s. And the person who was responsible for basically all of the politics in Kansas City and who controlled the police force, he ended up losing power and ultimately uh, getting arrested and, and getting locked up. And when that guy, who, that political boss, whose name was Tom Pendergast, when he is out of the picture, um, a new police chief comes in to Kansas City, whose name is Lear Reed. And Lear Reed basically rebuilds the police force from the bottom up and hires a whole bunch of new police officers. And one of the ones he hired was Byron Engel. And for reasons that are uh, s- perhaps somewhat intangible, Byron Engel advanced very rapidly in in the police force. He just seemed to have a certain kind of knack for policing. And he became a police trainer in Kansas City. And he developed an ability to train police very effectively. And that was what made him stand out. So then at the end of World War II, when the United States was trying to rebuild the police force from the bottom up in Japan, some officials had the idea, well, let's find, uh, you know, let's find the guy in the United States who's really the best at, at training police and bring him to Japan. And, and it turned out that 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 was Byron Engel. And so once he went to Japan, he never really came back to the United States. I mean, of course, he, he, he came back to live. He ended up living outside of Washington, D.C., but he continually traveled the globe and his professional life was always oriented toward U.S. foreign policy, and he, he continued with police overseeing police training and, and assistance around the globe for, for that whole period. And so when the program officially, the police assistance program officially begins at the end of 1954, he has a key role in it. And then when it gets the name, the Office of Public Safety, under the Kennedy administration in 1962... He's the director of the Office of Public Safety. And so on the one hand, Engel is a vehicle for me to tell the story because he is so committed to a certain type of police reform. And he's also committed to using police reform and police modernization to wage the Cold War in third world countries. He's committed to preventing communist revolution by upgrading the police of of all these aid recipient countries. So he symbolizes or emblematizes that mission, but he also, you know, literally was actually in charge of it. And so I did not know who Byron Engel was before I started my research. I did not go into this process saying I'm going to, you know, figure out the the life story of Byron Engel. Instead, um, as I was doing my research, and I learned about the Office of Public Safety as being a central node of U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War, or at least until the 1970s, and that that was the node that allowed a kind of traffic between domestic and foreign domains among police professionals. That was when I started to pay attention to Byron Engel. I learned about the Office of Public Safety first and then i found out that he was the director and then i kind of looked into his biography and 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 tried to understand him and and once i got a sense of his biography i actually got a better sense of what the office of public safety was trying to do because in many ways it it really was it really was his agency he was empowered by people who were above him. And I, as you know, in, in the book, I spend a, a chapter mostly focused on a guy called Robert Comer. And Robert Comer was basically Engel's boss, and he was on the National Security Council. And Comer uh, consistently made efforts to empower Engel, because I think he really agreed with Engel's assessment of what needed to be done. And he trusted him and and, and supported him throughout this this period. And Comer himself was close with both uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson.
0: One thing is that, let's not sugarcoat it, the US police at that time was incredibly racist. But then you see that these same extremely racist police officers are going to African countries to train police there, for example, like how did that interaction work and what were the practical effects of that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's one that I try to explore throughout the book. It is true that many of the police, public safety advisors, police experts that I look at, um, they have come out of police forces that have histories of upholding Jim Crow, of uh, maintaining social control over African-American populations, of keeping the, the color line in place in the United States. At the same time, these Police who enroll in the public safety program who basically make the decision that they want to you know, leave their hometown USA and join a new career overseas, there are certainly a range of reasons why they do that that are personal you know some might have just wanted to get away they were they were bored um, some were, some found uh, the appeal of a higher salary that became available when they went overseas. But one requirement for them to go overseas was that they did have to have a certain level of expertise and proficiency. A number of them had experience even working in in colleges to teach courses to police who who were taking higher education courses. So that's just to say that the police experts who become public safety advisors, many of them are... They, they hold command rank, so they're lieutenant or higher. They're not rank and file police uh, patrolling a beat, and suddenly, next thing you know, they're they're in Liberia or Guatemala. Um, they have advanced to a, a certain level of, of stature in, in their careers, and they have exhibited a, a certain type of necessary expertise. So what this means is that They tend to be reformers. They tend to believe in the power of transformation of police forces in order to make policing work more uh, smoothly. And I think that the kind of best way to understand this is that they are really worried about the legitimacy of police forces. Both at home and overseas. And they recognize that police forces are often perceived as lacking legitimacy when they're engaged in forms of abuse, including racist abuse. So, what they want to find is a pathway to maintain political hierarchy and social control, and that includes racial hierarchy and social control of racial minority groups, but they want to find a way to do it in a manner that doesn't discredit police forces and doesn't make it seem like they are illegitimate. This is an almost impossible task because it's necessarily true that upholding racial hierarchy will make a police force illegitimate in the eyes of the group that is being oppressed or is at the bottom end of of that hierarchy. This is true overseas as much as it's true at home. But they do consistently argue that if police don't engage in wanton abuse, don't kill people in in broad daylight in public settings, um, particularly amid public protests, um, political protests, if they are careful about the language they use. All of these are tools for both reforming police, but also trying to maintain the legitimacy of police. Now, when these advisors go to other countries, it is often the case in many of these countries that the people that they are working with, the police of other countries, are dark-skinned. Now, they at home, they might not have been very accustomed to treating people with dark skin as their equal, right? Because in many police forces across the United States, it was quite rare for there to be uh, African American or Puerto Rican or Mexican-American police commanders. There were some rank and file, and of course in some places there were some commanders, but on the whole, they're relatively rare. And now you take these these police advisors, put them overseas, and and their counterparts whom they're dealing with on a daily basis are dark-skinned. Did that lead to frictions, tensions? Absolutely, no question. Um, But I do think that these advisors tended to be what I would call racial liberals in general, which meant that they were careful, at, at the very least, they were careful about exhibiting openly racist viewpoints. And they also tried to recast their ideas about racial difference in the language that we previously referred to of modernization and development. So to the extent that they saw a kind of un, a strong distance between the United States and other countries, um, which could have been scripted in racial terms in terms of, um, let me put it this way, to the extent that they thought in terms of hierarchy, they would have thought of that hierarchy as placing the United States at the top and other countries at the bottom, but those other countries could advance closer to the United States. And their liberal reformism and their efforts to upgrade those other countries were part of pushing those people up that pathway toward advancing to a likeness of the United States.
0: Well, one thing in your book that you mention is how quickly that these police tactics that the U.S. used overseas were brought back home to retrain American local police and against, I guess, what the U.S., I don't know, imagined or thought or believed were counterinsurgency forces, or, which is, were mostly like Black liberation movements. So do you want to talk more about that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we've we've mainly been talking thus far about the ways that the United States, um, you know, trained police from other countries. But what I found and in, 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 in what I write about in Badges Without Borders and, and really what is one of the main focal points of the book is the way that these efforts overseas then reverberate back home. And what I've tried to lay out is is that the the ideas and technical approaches that the United States uses to upgrade police in other countries are mainstream within policing circles in the United States in in the middle of the 20th century. They are not presenting totally new and revolutionary and unheard of ideas about how to policing, how to do policing when they go to other countries. In fact, they're just using the kind of what we'd call today, perhaps best practices of policing within the United States. Now, there are many police forces across the United States, particularly in you know more rural areas or in uh, poorer, more poor cities that Uh, These police experts would have said, they would have looked at them and they would have said, hey, you know, what this city needs is just like what a city in Brazil or Nigeria needs, for example. They are both underdeveloped, right? So in the United States, in this period, there is an effort to upgrade the, the technical capabilities of police across the United States. And it mainly really gets a lot of resources devoted to it, starting in the middle of the 1960s under the Johnson administration. When the Johnson administration declares a quote unquote war on crime, what that means is that they're going to give money from the federal budget to police around the country. And What I argue in the book is that this effort to upgrade police around the country, of course, it comes in the middle of the 60s. It comes in the context of the the civil rights movement. It comes in the context of urban uprisings across the country, which happened mainly from 1964 to 1968. And the idea that uh, cities around the United States are potentially on the verge of, you know, having their governments overthrown um, really resonates for the figures whom I'm looking at, because that is their main worry when they're looking at third world countries. And so the role that Byron Engel plays specifically is after the uprisings in Newark and Detroit in 1967, when the Kerner Commission does its investigation into those uprisings and tries to explain what happened and, and basically what to do to prevent them from happening again, Byron Engel gives advice to the Kerner Commission about that. And his advice is basically, he says, we think that federal government should basically do at home what it's doing overseas with the Office of Public Safety. And so, That is what happens. That's what the war on crime does. It takes uh, federal dollars and provides uh, training and technical assistance and other forms of support to police around the United States, just as the Office Office of Public Safety did around the globe. And Specifically, in two of the chapters in the book, I look at two particular features of this. One is the adoption of so-called tear gas, which Byron Engel is um, very much in favor of. The federal government enables cities and states across the country to acquire new tear gas technologies and to start using it in so-called crowd control or riot control settings. And Byron Engel, his his role in this is to say, hey, look, we use tear gas overseas when we, when we uh, train other police forces around the globe. And we think that police forces in the United States should do the same. And the, the kind of interesting wrinkle that I point out in this is that, of course, tear gas has already been used in the United States before this period. But in the 1960s, a new, much more potent and intense form of tear gas comes Into use, which is which is a chemical called CS. And CS has been used widely by the United States overseas, not very used at all in the United States until after um, Engel's uh, intervention to get it to be adopted. And so starting in 1968, CS starts getting used really widely in crowd control situations, riot control situations in the United States. The other example that I look at is riot control training. Um, the United States creates a kind of national level riot control training program for uh, police, National Guard, and Army. Um, and many, many police from around the country get trained in, in various uh, methods of riot control. And this continues into the 1970s. Um, it's, it's under the auspices of the U.S. Army, but basically the, the model for what this training should look like is, is derived in large part from the training that the Office of Public Safety provides to other countries around the globe.
0: So I guess I'm trying to understand how our current police force, which seems kind of like last week I was looking at a video where this guy was there without a mask and they just pulled him out of the bus and I, somebody did a comparison with the police in Vietnam, where police in Vietnam just gave some guy in the bus without a mask a mask. And how did this kind of like violence first kind of mentality become so strongly imbued in our culture?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that is a that is a really good question and not an easy one to answer. Um, What I think is is really interesting about the figures that I look at in the book is that if they were to watch that video, I think their response would probably be to say, well, it's clear that these police need more training. They need more standardized protocols for how to deal with situations that they encounter like this one. And on top of that, probably the police budget Needs to be increased because with an increased budget, there will be more officers, uh, more access to training, and more access to um, the, the various tools that they need. So that impulse to say that whenever police are seen to do something that is abusive or wrong, or or again, to, to use the language I, I used earlier, you know, that makes police seem illegitimate. And I think that you know the the video that you're referring to. You know, really does make it seem like um, the police are absolutely not acting in a way that is um, beneficial to public health, or they're, they're in fact doing the the exact opposite. The impulse to respond to those types of problems with new new forms of training and increasing the amount of resources available to available to police. This way of thinking comes out of this mid-century. World of of police expertise that I look at in badges without borders. These figures that I that I look at, they are above all reformers, but they are absolutely committed to never weakening, but only ever strengthening police forces and PR problems. I mean, if if, if maybe maybe it seems a little bit ridiculous, but to to, to refer to what what you're referring to. Um, as a PR problem, which is I think how they would have basically seen it, PR problems are always opportunities for enhancing the resources and strength of police, not for dialing back the power of police, which I think is the response of of many people when they when they see a video like that the The, the response of many people is to say. Uh, this indicates that the police have too much power and they're engaging in activities that are actually harmful. And so we should constrain police power. But the police reformers that I'm looking at, they would never have that response. They would say, this is just a reason to direct more resources to police and to use those resources perhaps a little bit more intelligently so that these types of PR crises don't happen again.
0: Ah, so they look at it as a PR crisis, as opposed to what we look at it as just a culture of violence. I guess.
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. I mean, I think that, that you know, police themselves under you know, in in general, understand their job as engaging in violence and coercion, and they are very, very reluctant ever to say that the the use of violence or coercion is unwarranted, what they might say is that the way it appeared that violence and coercion was used um, could have been a little bit different, right? So that the kind of public perception could potentially be modified, rather than the fundamental mission of engaging in forms of coercion, um, they're, they're, they are not going to to let that go.
0: Yeah, so where do we go from here? Now that we kind of, uh, I, I recommend everyone, I, I'm gonna put the link in the description for Stuart's book, but where do we go from here? Is there a hope of having the American police be I don't know, different, like it'd be better um, or is it something that we kind of need to build back up from the ground?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, my inclination is to, you know, based on this historical research I've done is to relinquish any hope because the, what the history I think shows is that police have been engaged in this effort to reform and improve the profession for decades and decades and decades and decades and nevertheless what we see is that this has not prevented you know for example just to return to to what you mentioned this has not prevented the types of you know utterly ridiculous situations like we are seeing right now, where people who are already at at grave risk of contracting the uh, COVID-19 are being arrested and then being subjected to potentially arrest and then um, getting locked up in jail, where the likelihood that they will uh, contract COVID-19 gets increased because of course jails are incubators of uh, even even before there was a pandemic jails are incubators of contagious uh, illness so you know we have decades and decades and decades of evidence suggesting that police reform does not eradicate these problems so i think the response to that has to be we cannot expect police to uh, reform their way out of these perpetual, perpetually unjust situations. The alternative, in my view, is to constrain the reach of police. This means shrinking police budgets, shrinking uh, the size of police forces, um, and it means building up new types of institutions that will take on many of the social roles that police are oftentimes taking on. Now, I think you would find that many police in 2020 in the United States would be happy to not have to respond to certain social situations that they are now tasked with responding to. And the reason that they are tasked with responding to these situations is because there's really nowhere else to turn. When you have an emergency, whether that emergency is, you know, your, your cat is stuck in a tree, or you're having, um, uh, you know, a seizure, you know, some kind of health emergency, um, or, you know, somebody broke into your house and, and stole your laptop. You know, you, you call emergency services and the, the first responder, to use that term, is the police, right? And I think that it's not quite clear to me that you know somebody armed with, with a gun who is trained to, as we've talked about, use coercive force as as the central part of their profession, is that the right person to respond to all of these different types of situations? I I think that many police would probably argue. That they are not always the right person to respond or or the right profession to respond. But the way that American society is organized at present is is such that there are very few um, state capacities to respond to these situations other than other than the police. And so that needs to change. And so I think that we need to imagine, on the one hand, both, shrinking the, the power and, and reach of police and, on the other hand, creating new types of institutions that have different missions, different training, different expertise to um, be able to address uh, social situations that we have. And, and at the same time, I think also necessarily going along with that is a, a more fundamental reconfiguring of American society um, so that it is not defined by uh, extreme and radical levels of um, economic, social, and racial inequality.
0: Well, thank you so much for this interview. What's next for you? Are you involved in any future follow-up projects or uh, another book or what's next for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I, I'm, I'm continuing to work on policing in my, my research and, you know, Badges Without Borders, as I mentioned, ends around nineteen seventy-five. And I, I think that the period from nineteen seventy-five to say twenty twenty is a, a relatively different period in in the history of policing in the United States. And I'm in my next book, I think that I will probably try to understand this next period and, and delve into it. And my my kind of guiding Intuition is to try to explain the increasing political strength and political organization and cohesion of police to influence politics in the United States at both municipal and national levels. And you can just kind of look at very recent history to kind of see the impetus for this. Because, of course, as we know, Donald Trump gained a lot of support from uh, police, including sheriffs and and other types of of police organizations. How is it that we got in the United States to a point at which police uh, professional organizations thought it was okay to support a presidential candidate and to engage in, in partisan politics in that way? In the 1960s, which which I uh, you know know the history better because of the research I did for Badges Without Borders, it would basically have been anathema for a professional organization of police in that period to avowedly support the election of one candidate or another. Now that's not to say that police officers themselves didn't have political preferences. Of course they did, but organizations were generally quite cautious about seeming like they should, you know, make a political endorsement, you know, fast forward to to the present. And now it's quite clear that police unions and professional organizations are really engaging in a very kind of um, visceral and 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 sometimes ugly form of, of partisan politics. So I want to explain that transformation and understand what happened along the way from the, the 70s to the present to enable that shift where police engage in politics. And and my hypothesis is that um, they really saw something to gain for themselves. Um, They could direct resources and and attention to, police could direct those resources and attention to themselves by engaging in in politics in that way.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Um, How would people find you on social media
1: I'm I'm quite easy to find. Uh, I'm on Twitter at S-T-S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R-1. Um, and I'm also easy to find online. I have a, a website with a lot of information about Badges Without Borders, which is StuartSchrader.com. And I'm very eager to hear from anybody who uh, picks up Badges Without Borders. And, you know, I'd love to know what people think.
0: Well, thank you so much. For me, it was very both enraging because it took everything I had not to like anger tweet every paragraph I read (laughs) and also enlightening um
1: thanks so much I really appreciate that and you know feel free to anger tweet as 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 much as necessary
0: (laughs) I want people to read the book so I don't want to be (laughs) good idea idea. um but uh yeah and please do come back again whenever you finish your next book or your research and it was a pleasure interviewing you
1: Great, thank you very much for this interview. Have a great day. Okay, you too.
0: Music for this show is done by RecTech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.